We are the first generation to feel the impact of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. And I think this is like the, the, the real elephant in the room that um, the negotiations cannot address. It's knowledge generation in order to contribute to the structural economic transformation that needs to happen to preserve our living conditions on this planet. What's important to see that there is this recognition of changing, really reforming the financial system. This is Generation One from University College London, turning climate science and ideas into action. Hello and welcome to Generation One. I'm Helen Chersky, a physicist and oceanographer here at UCL. Last week, you may have heard my co-host Mark Maslin in Sharm el-Sheikh for the COP27 summit in Egypt. We heard on Sunday morning, 40 hours after the official COP deadline, that delegates had finally agreed a deal to create a new global fund to help countries which face huge costs as they deal with the loss and damage from climate change. This is a huge achievement for smaller and developing nations which have been asking for this for years and who feel that their increasingly urgent pleas on this topic have been continually sidelined by rich countries who are focused on emissions reductions. But the flip side of this COP was that very little progress was made. Some say it even went backwards a bit on the fundamental issue of cutting emissions and pushing forward the changes needed to restrict global heating to 1.5 degrees centigrade. So as always, it's tricky from the outside to understand what the significance of this year's COP is and what will really change as a result. Is it enough and what happens next? You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. Today, I'll be talking to three UCL colleagues with differing perspectives on what happened at COP27. We'll hear from Jihan Shen, a UCL student and climate advocate with Yungo, the youth constituency of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. I'll also be talking to Nadia Amali from the Institute for Sustainable Resources and Katie Kedwood, who is an economist at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. But before I introduce them, I just want to take a moment to remind you how you can get involved in the podcast and also in UCL's work and campaigns. We have a website, ucl.ac.uk forward slash climate hyphen change. There you'll find all kinds of news, research and practical information about how your choices can make a difference. We would obviously love it if you would rate and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from and share it with your network. And we're also on Instagram and Twitter, hashtag UCL Generation One, where you can comment on what you've heard. We also love to get your emails with comments and suggestions for future topics. The address is podcasts with an S at ucl.ac.uk. And if you want, you can send a voice note and we will include it in a future episode. So let's get started by meeting one of the UCL community who was actually there at COP27, and that is Zihan Shen. To start with, just tell me um, when you were at COP and what it was like. Yeah, for sure. So I think generally this COP is happening under quite extraordinary circumstances, as um, many of you would know. We are dealing at the same time as climate change uh, with also a war in Ukraine. We are dealing with an energy crisis. And all those circumstances, I think, affected 
what parties and governments hope to achieve at COP27. Specifically, I think there was a perception that a lot more was needed if we were to keep 1.5 alive. But at the same time, I think there is also um, a lack of motivation or incentives for governments to prioritize this issue alongside the many other urgent and pressing challenges that they are facing. So just explain what the Children and Youth Pavilion was all about and why you think it's necessary. Yes, for sure. So this was the first year and the first COP that we are actually having the Children and Youth Pavilion. So um, we're actually quite proud to be able to put up this space. And what it really aims to achieve, at least from my personal opinion, is to create a space whereby young people feel safe and, and, and included in the policymaking spaces, but also a space where young people can showcase their ways of contributing towards the climate fight. So that means it's not just about policymaking, it's also about showcasing the contributions of young artists, for example, or, or um, young musicians and how they are also leading this fight towards the climate crisis. And finally, and this was the part where which I'm responsible for, is to organise every day around noon time, a high-level speaking segment where we invite world leaders um, to come speak with you in a more informal kind of interactive um, setting so that we can hear from these world leaders, you know, how they will commit to uh, meaningful youth engagement and how we can uh, work with them um, in an intergenerational way to bring about the outcomes that we want. What, from your perspective, were the things that the youth voices were calling for that perhaps weren't coming as strongly from other areas? What What was distinctive about what your grouping was saying or doing? Many of the youth groups um, which were present in COP actually had a meeting at the very start of COP to align on some of our key priorities. And um, they came down to three main things. So first, on the issue of um, loss and damage finance facility, uh, which we were very proud um, to actually advocate for and in the end got a decision on, which was also unprecedented. The second is to scale up support for adaptation. And the third is to ensure that the promises of finance and climate finance specifically are being delivered on by the Global North. But I think from youth in particular, uh, what we are pushing for really this time round is for intergenerational equity and specifically for young people to be involved in the climate policymaking spaces. Because despite the fact that we have a youth pavilion, we have um, some dedicated youth forums, for example, it is still kind of not the case that young people, especially in the global south, are actively included in the decision making spaces. And I'm just interested in your your actual perception of the event. You know, what did you see that really impressed you and what did you see that really didn't impress you? Yeah, I I do appreciate that the the criticism about how it's been about too much talking and not enough implementation, because ultimately, I think the negotiations do not adequately, in my opinion, address some of the key kind of factors behind why we are having the climate crisis in the first place. Uh, which is you know, some of the economic structures, political structures that determine the state of our world right now. And I think this is like the, the, the real elephant in the room that um, the negotiations cannot address. It probably will not address. And I think if we want to get towards um, 1.5 or anything even near 1.5, we need to start looking at some of these systemic um, solutions. And therefore, I think what did impress me um, is the fact that you know you did have um, not just young people, but in general, just very kind of passionate 
um, advocates or negotiators or diplomats or even artists who are contributing towards this fight. And, and they are really kind of putting in not just those two weeks of efforts, but a whole year round of consistent engagement with COP to try to get some of their demands across. And that was very inspiring. But on the other hand, I think what didn't impress me as much was the fact that because we're all ultimately operating in this context where it's very difficult to get radical kind of shifts in place with just two weeks, it, it, it sometimes does feel a bit, I guess, dis- in a way quite, people do feel kind of quite disillusioned with this process. One of the things that I find very interesting about this process uh, that we've been on for a long time, and it's just that it takes a long time to get going, is that, you know, it comes from different places and it comes both from the bottom and from the top. And what what I see on the ground now, you know, in this country and talking to companies and uh, councils and organisations is that they are trying really, really hard on the ground. Like they, they don't really mind about what's said at COP in a lot of ways in that they're already trying to, you know, put solar on roofs and reduce their resource use and all that kind of thing. Like they're, they're doing loads of stuff. But from the top, it's like this mysterious world of governments and policies. And it's all a bit weird. You know, it's hard to work out what's actually going on. Do you, do you feel optimistic for what's going on up there? And do you feel it really has an impact? Yeah, a lot of it is about, you know, how governments and negotiating blocks try to advance their interests, um, sometimes at the expense of others. Um, but I do think also that if you look at the actual outcome of COP this year, there are positives about the loss and damage finance facility that can very much be turned into a promising solution for grassroots action if we can get the funding to trickle down to communities that are on the front line. You also have, for example, on youth, very good precedents set this year when it comes to the Children and Youth Pavilion, when it comes to the Youth Envoy, when it comes to the Sharma Sheikh Youth Climate Dialogue, all those things that can be turned into opportunities um, for grassroots engagement. On the other hand, I think that there is a kind of detachment from the negotiations from what's happening in the pavilions and in the other spaces of COP, and even in the green zone, which we don't talk about so much. Over over there, you can really see a lot of grassroots um, and grassroots-led solutions actually being pitched and being shared um, in country pavilions or even thematic pavilions. And I think the challenge is, for me is how do we make sure that whatever commitments or whatever financial or technical resources that are being promised by governments in the in the cover decision actually can reach those communities and can be utilised by them. Yeah, it's a, it's a very important point. And, and just finally, I was curious about what this leaves you with for the future. I mean, we've had the big statements, we heard what the governments think, but for you personally, you know, you were there, you're now back in the UK. What sort of how does this kind of set you up for what you're going to do next or what your next interests are? What What are you taking away for all of this and what are you going to do with that? This is my second COP. So I was at the Glasgow COP last year. And uh, for me, having that kind of, I guess, benefit of hindsight means that I can see that when it comes to young people, there is concrete progress being made. I think for me personally, it is also about trying to connect some of these um negotiations to the issues that I personally care about and um, how that can potentially shape my careers. So one of the issues which I really care very much about is the issue of green transition, green jobs and localizing NDCs. And this is something that young people at large um, can benefit from because when you attend these negotiations, you understand more about, for example, the ESG landscape 
and how that can shape some of the personal decisions I make in terms of, for example, what sort of careers I like to go into, or even, you know, what kind of political parties I like to vote for. So I think beyond everything, you know, about on, on a governmental level, even on a personal level, in a way, COP is a capacity building exercise. And in that regard, I think there is a lot to learn from this process beyond what you can contribute. And we should just define a couple of acronyms there. So NDC, those are the nationally determined contributions. So that's what countries have said, have committed to adding to this effort. And ESG is um, a quite relatively new acronym. I think it was only yeah. invented in 2005. So that's environmental, social and governance, uh, which is often applied to the responsibilities of corporations to, to be responsible citizens, basically. Jihan, it's really interesting to hear from you. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope that you continue to, to find things to take away and keep spreading the word about what was at COP and, and why it matters. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to UCL Generation One, turning science and ideas into climate action. So now we've heard what it was like on the ground at COP, now let's get to some analysis of what it all means in the long run and what needs to happen next. Our guests for this are Nadia Amali, who's the Principal Research Fellow at the Bartlett School of Environment, Energy and Resources, uh, which is part of the Faculty of Built Environment here at UCL, and also Katie Kedwood, who is a Research Fellow in Central Banking and Sustainability at UCL's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. So welcome to the podcast, both of you. Hello. Hello, thank you very much. So let's start with the outcome of COP. You know, this is only um, a day ago, just over 24 hours before we recorded this. What was the outcome of this COP and what were the big successes and failures? Perhaps Katie? Yes, so a really uh, historic outcome from this COP27 conference this year was the agreement of a loss and damages fund. So this loss and damages fund was historic uh, in part because it has been demanded by developing countries um, as something they need for over three decades. And it has met um, time and time again a lot of resistance from, from wealthier nations who have been very hesitant to accept the notion that they may need to pay compensation essentially, to these poorer nations who are facing the unequal reality of being more exposed to climate-related impacts, but having not com uh, emitted most of the, uh, the carbon emissions that are causing them. So the, the 11th hour turn by the European Commission on, on Friday night, backing the loss and damages fund, uh, was really pretty groundbreaking, and it led to the final agreement. We don't have all of the details sorted for the fund yet, and I, I suppose we'll come on to that later. But in terms of opening the door to recognising climate justice, this was a really big deal for the COP. And then, um, Nadia, the question of loss and damage has taken over so much of this COP. Does that mean that other areas were neglected a bit? So I guess it was a sort of exchange. That was the way it was felt, this COP, in order to pass this loss and damage facility funding somehow uh, Europe and other countries really give away on other huge priorities, in particular in terms of emission and also facing down fossil fuels. Well, we should probably outline a, a sort of peculiarity of, of the COP process here, which is that in Paris, the, this target of 1.5 degrees, only allowing warming of 1.5 degrees above the pre-industrial average, was agreed on. 
but the how to do it was not agreed on. And there was this assumption that these commitments would kind of ratchet up, that you know, there were people, countries would make minimal commitments and then at every successive COP, basically, they would do better. And, and it's, that's what didn't really happen, right, Nadia? One of the disappointments for this COP was somehow shaped by the fact there was a huge presence of fossil fuel representatives, and it was particularly clear compared to the previous COPs. There was almost no representatives from fossil fuel industries in the previous COPs. They start to attend the last COP in Glasgow, while this year the amount, the amount of really the lobbies, let's say, from the fossil fuel industry increased quite substantially. And I guess reading really the news, the articles also from the Financial Times, Bloomberg and other journalists who were there, they all admitted that it was really felt the presence of the fossil fuel representatives as somehow there was really some tension around really reducing really the commitment of facing down fossil fuels. So I guess on this really we, we lose a bit this COP and uh, I hope next year it will be again quite a delicate topic given that it will be in the Emirates. So still a very, uh, a country which is quite focused on fossil fuels. Well, I guess it was very, there's a statistic, I think, that has been uh, mentioned, which is that there were more fossil fuel representatives than representatives, representatives of the small islands who will disappear right. because of climate change. But the other thing, just to cover the sort of headline issues at this COP, and then we'll dig down into the details. So there, going into this, it was said that there were these two main areas of focus, that one was loss and damage, but the other one that this was the African COP. Now, it's not the first time COP has been held on the continent of Africa, but there was a focus in the developing countries being heard, perhaps, in a way they haven't been before? Uh, I guess some of the uh, priorities for Africa were heard in terms of the loss and damage uh, funding, which was definitely a priority, and uh, uh, vulnerable countries have been waiting this for a fossil fuel facility for 30 years. It wasn't somehow heard the African country voices when it comes to the Africa special needs and special circumstances. Just during the COP, basically the African negotiator put forward the proposal trying to highlight recognizing really the special needs that Africa has in terms of growing population, increasing energy needs, and also the special circumstances in which Africa is. Again, it's one of the biggest countries globally that where climate change impacts will, will be most felt. Unfortunately, this proposition was declined and rejected. So I'm not really positive on the fact that the African voice was heard. I guess there was, I guess, another positive note, more in terms of youth and young activists. At least we see that in this COP, there was a little bit more space to living to young activists. So there was, they, they, they were able to keep a momentum somehow. I think what was interesting from this COP was the recognition that the role international financial institutions, such as the World Bank and the IMF, the role that they play in really providing development finance to Africa and other low-income nations. Al Gore went on record with this incredible language accusing the World Bank of fossil fuel colonialism for continuing to increase its financing to fossil fuel projects across the developing world since the Paris Agreement. And I think he was directly referencing the, the huge amounts of World Bank finance currently going into fossil gas pipeline infrastructure across Africa. 
um, which is obviously very striking because it's it's uh, putting these position these countries in a in a in a position of carbon lock-in in terms of the infrastructure they're building out, when really they should be in the put in the best possible position to leapfrog fossil fuel infrastructure altogether. You mentioned before, Katie, this question of the loss and damage fund being agreed in principle. I mean, these things seem to happen very slowly to the outside world. So, so what has actually been agreed with the loss and damage fund is that it it should exist. And that's the big deal. But actually, there's nothing in there about how it will exist, right? Or exactly who's going to pay into it and when. Yes, exactly. So we don't know who exactly is funding it. We don't know how much funding entire mechanism is likely to receive. And, you know, on the basis of commitments alone, uh, we sort of have to be careful on how much optimism we, we throw into this for the simple reason that on a historic basis, few countries have ever made commitments to loss and damages or have made commitments to date. And secondly, you know, we have a very poor record of, of previous financing commitments to the global south. The COP conference in Copenhagen 12 years ago, rich nations pledged $100 billion per year to developing nations by 2020. That that promise, that pledge uh, was was never made, was never met and was never held to account. Uh, we still don't know where the, the promised 100 billion per year um, has gone or whether it will it will ever make its way to developing nations. I'm interested in the sort of some of the little bits of detail in a way and, and just as examples of um, the sorts of things that were discussed or where progress was made that in your own specific areas were the particular details that came out or exchanges or you know conversations that were had or statements that were particularly impressive to you or that were particularly notable do you think in your specific area um nadia first perhaps yes part of my research looks a lot at how we can reform the climate finance architecture that we see today it is important that we have this recognition now in the agreement in the text and um, and there is really a huge need of reforming the way multilateral development banks but also international institutions they're really lending money to poor country i've done some of the research in this space dig into the numbers and uh, if when we look at the global finance, especially mitigation that is flowing from north to south, uh, to the global south, we see that li- a very little fraction in the order really of less than 1% goes to the most vulnerable countries. And this is true not only for the private finance, but even for the public one. So we do have a problem if through basically the architectural public finance, we are not really able to target the most vulnerable ones, the poorest countries, uh, through really some public effort and support. So for me was, getting back to your point, was was important to see that there is this recognition of changing, really reforming the financial system, and in particularly in challenging the way the public institutions, particularly the uh, World Bank, IMF, have been lending their money to the most vulnerable countries. And Katie, in your specific area of interest, what what are the details that you saw or that you noted that were particularly interesting um, during this COP? I guess I I am optimistic that change will come for the simple reason that, you know, the aftermath of the pandemic has led a huge number of developing countries in a really dire economic situation in terms of their debt burdens, uh, the amount of their national budgets they're spending each year on simply servicing debts. And on top of that, they're obviously being hit by uh, an uh, increased frequency and severity of, of climate-related disasters. So I think there is there is widespread acknowledgement now that 
as well as redistribution of funds, which we've, we've already spoken about as part of loss and damages, there also needs to be debt restructuring, potentially even debt forgiveness, um, in order for countries to, to take up the challenge of climate change. And that that requires the, that requires quite deep structural reforms to the, the way the international financial and monetary system operates, uh, including, as Nadia said, reforms of the, the World Bank and the IMF as key institutions there. Another development which I found quite remarkable, actually, was the comments that Mark Carney, uh, former governor of the Bank of England, made on behalf of the GFANS alliance, uh, alliance, so that's the Glasgow Financial Alliance on Net Zero, which is a coalition of um, a number of very large financial institutions. And these comments basically called or even asked for governments to increase financial regulation to support the transition to net zero. And this, again, is, is really quite an extraordinary statement. The first year of GFANS, you know, it's been it's been wrecked by controversies uh, and difficulties. A number of prominent banks and pension funds, particularly in the US, have either pulled out or threatened to pull out of, of the alliance due to the fact that they're facing uh, legal challenges, litigation risks from, from their own shareholders. And uh, I think what struck me about Mark Carney's comments this year is he he struck kind of a, a lonely figure. And, um, you know, the, the kind of shift of the GFANS allowance to kind of recognising, OK, maybe we need governments to, to come in pave the way for us, give us some more guidance on, on where and how finance should be governed uh, for the green transition, I thought was very interesting. Something I think Milton Friedman said at some point, you know, decades and decades ago, shareholders have become the point of a company. And nobody questioned that. And all the business leaders today just assume that the entire, you know, that the legal system is set up so that shareholders are the point of a company. And actually, it doesn't have to be true. <laughs> There's this kind of realisation mm-hmm. going on that mm-hmm. actually... It, we, you know, we have a choice. Do either of you see any real progress on COP pushing things like that along? It's not just reforming government regulation. It's actually reforming what we think a company is, because that's a massive part of this, isn't it? Hmm, it's an interesting question. I think, well, I mean, you know, over the past 20 years or so, COP has definitely got uh, been a big part of getting climate up the agenda. The, the fact that Nadia said, you know, over 600 fossil fuel lobbyists were in attendance this year, I think is testament to how important it has become, even for those companies with vested interests to attend and show their face at what has become quite an important political event for, for the development of climate policy. Look, I think, you know, a concurrent risk that has risen over the same time in terms of this development is also the risk of greenwashing because you know the the COP process at its core is about you know it's a framework for negotiating commitments it's not a framework for delivering on actions you know that's the role of governments to go away and then come up with their nationally determined contributions and their strategies for decarbonisation so the you know the 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 potential for the COP process to have been co-opted by companies making ambitious statements and then not delivering on them I think is a risk that um, has become probably more acknowledged over the past year but still needs to be held to account properly so in our in our own work we've called for a much bigger role to be played by central banks and and financial regulators in coordination with um, broader government to use regulatory policy to help steer finance away from the activities that are clearly incompatible with a transition and clearly the the definition of those activities needs to be put in some sort of public taxonomy 
but also uh, steering finance towards activities where funding is more urgently needed. Uh, because as Nadia said, you know, green assets are qualitatively different uh, from the incumbent carbon intensive industries. And there needs to be a, a more market shaping industrial policy approach to kind of nurture finance in that direction. I'm actually interested in the idea that both of your job titles exist. And I think this is very interesting when you come, you know, we're discussing COPs and and whether the COP makes progress and perspective on the COP. But actually, the fact that you two have these, that your research fellows specifically in these areas, that's a big step that you're able to look at the COP and, and, you know, provide analysis on what's going on. How do your new jobs, if you like, contribute to this process of, of COP27 and what it needs to do and what has to happen next? Uh, I guess, yeah, policymakers will take the final step in order to implement basically our recommendation. But I guess we do have the responsibility to inform the debate and to show really the real numbers because uh, something that I've seen a lot, especially in climate finance, is it's very easy to make statements, to join alliance like the, the Glasgow Alliance for, uh, for Climate Finance or any other climate pledges. But then when you check, for instance, the portfolio location of those companies, you don't see really progresses or you don't see really huge changes. So I guess we, we do have this function to provide the empirical evidence in order to inform the policy debate. And then it will be uh, somehow the policymaker job to implement and to find the right trade-off uh, in terms of what kind of goals we want to achieve for the future. And, and Katie, briefly again, if you would, what, what's your perspective on having a job description that wouldn't have existed five years ago? <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one, actually, because um, I guess first and foremost, as an economist, I, I and as working in academia, I see myself as a scientist, right? So I want to objectively look at evidence and come up with uh, conclusions to inform policy on the basis of real science. And the importance of that, importance of that, as Nadia said, is is very much to hold businesses and governments to account on the decisions they're making, but also the commitments they're making. But I guess also as an economist, taking into account the the kind of existential threat that we're facing here, right? This isn't like regular science, just kind of generating knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's 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 knowledge generation in order to contribute to the to the structural economic transformation that needs to happen to kind of uh, preserve our living conditions on this planet. And so there's a kind of uh, there's a, there's a normative aspect to what we're doing here. It's it's urgent and it's needed and it's it is as I said existential. We are almost out of time. Very quickly from both of you then. I'm curious in your level of optimism. We're recording this uh, the day after COP27 finally finished with an agreement, an imperfect agreement, but still an agreement. What is, in a couple of sentences each, how optimistic about things are you feeling at the moment? Uh, Nadia first. Um, Given where the COP will be set next year, with again, it's the Emirates, uh, I'm not incredibly optimistic in the sense that we are going to find an agreement on emission reduction, in particular the phase down of fossil fuels. But I do feel quite optimistic in terms that we're making progresses towards uh, a loss and damage financing facility. So hopefully really this year we can see some progresses in around basically how this facility will work and some more details on, um, on funding mechanisms uh, and also contributions. Uh, as I said, I'm less of, much less optimistic in terms of the facing down of the fossil fuels. Okay, Katie, level of optimism. Um, difficult question to answer. I think 
the current energy crisis and macroeconomic crisis we're facing, given its links to energy, um, this kind of supply shock we've seen uh, to fossil gas from the Russia-Ukraine war, it's very much put decarbonisation on the agenda in terms of a pure economics and political perspective. So that, I think, is cautious terms for optimism. But overall, look, I would say we have the technology available to solve this problem. We have the financial resources available. The obstacles that there are to overcome are largely political, and that means that they are eminently surmountable. Um, What it just needs is uh, more activism, more involvement from everybody, calling for ambitious targets, uh, delivery on those targets, and most importantly, uh, holding the powers that be to account for everybody. Well, I love your optimism that politics is actually the easy, <laughs> the easy part of the uh, problem rather than the hardest. OK, we are out of time for today. So uh, Nadia Amelie and Katie Kedwood, thank you very much for joining us on Generation One. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Pleasure. That's all we have time for this week on Generation One. So it's time for me to say thank you very much indeed to my guests, Zihan Shen, Nadia Amali and Katie Kedwood. And quickly, quick reminder here of how you can get in touch with us at Generation One. Send an email or a voice note to podcasts with an S at ucl.ac.uk. We really love to get your feedback and we'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes and guests. We hope to be back in the new year for a new series of Generation One. But until then, from me, Helen Cheresky, thanks for listening and goodbye.